HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Eric Williams from Virtue Restaurant and Bar in Chicago. In today's episode, we'll talk to Eric about how he and Virtue are navigating these turbulent times, the societal change he'd most like to see, and we'll hear Eric's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We continue to send our best to everyone coping with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially those in the hospitality industry, those recovering their health and livelihoods, and those striving for change. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was passionate about chefs, and she was passionate about restaurants. After all, it was one meal in one certain restaurant in France that changed the trajectory of Julia's life. In turn, that restaurant meal also changed the way Americans viewed food and cooking. For Julia, her time in France sparked a lifelong interest in chefs and their craft. As her career in America progressed, she moved beyond French cooking to learn from multitudes of chefs. You might say she was a chef, super fan. She used her public platform to sing their praises and to lift up the profession. So it's hard to underestimate the value of restaurants and their chefs to Julia and to our culture as a whole. The pandemic has laid bare two things about restaurants. They were really deeply embedded in our cultural life, and at the same time, they are very fragile. The economics behind them and the inequities built into their systems of operation are more visible than ever. The veil is truly lifted, but where do we go from here? 
Today, we wanted to talk to someone on the front lines about how things are going right now in the restaurant world. Joining us today is Chef Eric Williams, owner and chef at Virtue Restaurant and Bar in the Hyde Park neighborhood on Chicago's South Side. Opened in November 2018, Virtue blends traditional Southern cooking with a contemporary fine dining approach. A native Chicagoan, Eric previously spent two decades working with Chef Michael Kornick at MK The Restaurant, serving as its executive chef. He was instrumental in helping MK build a loyal local following, as well as to garner national acclaim. Eric was named one of America's 16 Black Chefs Changing Food by the New York Times, and Virtue was named one of America's Best New Restaurants by Esquire Magazine, both in 2019. This year, Williams was nominated as one of the Best Chefs Great Lakes by the James Beard Foundation. He was also named a Smith Symposium Fellow by the Southern Foodways Alliance. He joins us today to share his experiences as a chef and restaurateur during the pandemic and his personal insights on this profound turning point in social justice, particularly in the food industry. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. We're glad you could join us. So just to begin, how are you and yours kind of holding up in these, I find, mind-bending and time-altering days? Um... I think we are doing just that. We're holding up. Um, and um, my friends and I share a, a statement to one another. We ask each other how we're doing, and, and the response is usually, I'm hanging in there. And then the immediate response is, great, don't let go. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that definitely sums up how almost everyone's feeling, right? It's all changed. Like the how you doing question is more loaded and meaningful than ever. It is. And I think, you know, there's a lot of relevance to our ancestry and how they coped during very difficult times. Um, you know, when if we if we dig deep enough in our American history. Right. We've, we've seen multiple famines take place um, without cure. Uh, we've yet to figure out how to cure cancer. Um, we've just learned to live with it to some degree. Um, and, you know, we've gone through a recession. We went through a depression years ago. Um, and I think the advice that's really common in most families that have had an opportunity to meet you know, grandparents or elders is to take one day at a time. Um, but we've had an opportunity to capture, you know, so many of our, our dreams and goals and, and, you know, in a vacuum that we forget how meaningful it is to just slow everything down and focus on today. I, I think that's lovely and profound and made me think of my grandmother who grew up very poor uh, during the depression and, and how, that marked her life and and how she behaved forever but i think she survived it and and it it made her you know want things in a good way like want family and want to succeed and want to work hard and to a pre i always say she was like the ultimate environmentalist before that was cool because she just saved everything because she knew how precious it could be Yes, you are absolutely right. I understand that process very well. 
And so how, how are things in Chicago overall right now? What, what, what's your feel and take, particularly as things have kind of worsened in many parts of the, the country? Um, I think that Chicago um, is undertaking a lot of change fast. Um, and as we look at the country at large, um, you know, there's just, there's a major shift that's constantly taking place, uh, which renders people um, unstable. It renders people anxious. Um, and especially the hospitality community. A lot of what we do is um, acclimate to change. And, um, you know, those of us that are nimble um, tend to survive you know, even the most sudden of changes. However, this has probably been, there's no probably. This has been the most difficult adjustment that restaurants have made in my entire um, um, career in restaurants and in my entire life, as I can remember. And, um, you know, there's no roadmap. So there's constant trial and error. Um, No one's getting a grade on whether whether an idea is successful or not um because you don't know if if the um scale is going to change from day to day you know we wake up trying Mm. to do the best we can do and you know whatever your best is could just not be enough you know to to meet the measure uh because because you know the unforeseen is taking precedence and that unforeseen happens to be COVID. And, and its impact on our communities, our economy, our health, um, and our thinking. Yeah, no, I mean, I think even even if you find something that seems to be working, something else could change societally or from COVID or health-wise tomorrow, which means it's, it, even the, the one thing you figured out is, is, is only good for who knows how long. You're absolutely right. And... Um, it just continues to compound the um, amount of need for solution and stability. And so let's speak more specifically about sort of where you've gotten to with virtue. And because I was going to ask you, how nimble do you feel and what stage of back to business would you describe you've reached at virtue right now? At virtue, we are at about 25% of our business levels. And um, it's a challenge. Every day it's a challenge. There's no other way to put it. And it's a very new challenge. Um, To frame this, for restaurants during what we thought were normal circumstances, Every day an operator walks in not knowing who's going to show up to work for whatever reason. Each day you start your shift not knowing who's physically going to honor their reservation. And the truth is, in a town like Chicago, all it takes is for the weatherman to wrongfully predict that there's going to be a storm blowing in at 7 o'clock, which is prime time in, in most states. Um, and just like that, you can lose 50% of your reservations, 60% of your reservations. 
you went from from having a really successful night um, as it relates to forecasting um, mm-hmm. to to have to having a bust. And in the same shift, you could now recognize that that a storm is supposed to be coming in and start to cut, and then people could quickly realize at six thirty that you know doesn't look like a storm's coming into me. Why don't we go try to eat and jump up and try to savor what's left of their evening and get to your restaurant at seven thirty or seven forty five, and now you're providing service that you um, might not be proud of because your team is overwhelmed and understaffed. That was the norm. Now, <laughs> I mean, we, we don't know what the heck is going on, right? We don't know who's showing up on both sides. Um, and now we have to go into, into action because we don't know if they're ill. We don't know if someone in their family is ill. We don't know if they're in mourning. Like, and, and all of this is changing rapidly. And so our support system is expected to be more robust. Our levels of sensitivity are expected um, to be that, that much more um, in tune or aligned. Uh, we're expected to purchase um, more equipment to make sure that our, that our team um, is safe and, and working, you know, at capacity, even though the restaurant is not able to operate at capacity. And so we're, we're extending more resources without more revenue in an industry where we were already working with very slim margins and in best case scenario, probably feeding off adrenaline and working on edge. Mm. And so maybe just describe what, um, well, let's start with what you did do. So at lockdown, you closed the restaurant and then you reopened with a, a, it seemed like a pretty swift commitment to helping the community. Could you maybe take us through that process and, and sort of where you've now maybe lead us up to where you've arrived in terms of what regular service you're doing and, and, and what you have retained or let go of in terms of kind of uh, local relief? Well, the first thing we did is we, we shifted immediately into um, family meals. We took, goodness, maybe two or three days to think about what that was going to look like. And then we, and then we made a major shift. And so um, it's not fair to credit us in the beginning for uh, uh, doing community work outside of our building. A fair assessment, if someone chose to give us credit or highlight what we were doing, is to recognize that we were focusing on our, our um, community inside the building. And so uh, we've got a group of young professionals that are not of the mindset or the focus to save a lot of money. And so with that being stated, 
if you tell me that my job has to close tomorrow, how do I survive? There are a couple options that most people would immediately think of. One is you call your parents or your closest friend that may have resources. The likelihood of you having resources in your in your community of friends and or allies gets a little slim depending on, you know, how wealthy your friends are. And young people don't generally generally have wealthy friends unless they grew up in a wealthy community. Mm. And so um, so that gets taken off the off the table. And, and so now you're you're reaching out to your parents. Um, and the other option would be to use resources that are supplied um, by the government and or your um, employer. And that resource would be unemployment. Problem is, is everything happened so fast and there was such a surge that the unemployment office was not set up for this kind of response. And, And so now you're back to one option or the only option, which is your parents. And we didn't want young people that we work hard to develop to have to become a strain on their families. Some of them support their families. So that's not Mm -hmm. even an option for them. And we felt it was important to make sure if we're going to open a restaurant and name it Virtue and Dignity happens to be part of what we believe in, then we want our people, even in the face of tragedy, to be able to display a high level of dignity. So that starts at the top. And, and so I took on the, 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 the task of making sure that we stayed open long enough for our team to be in a position to create a nest egg for themselves until they could get to a point where it was feasible for them to decide if they needed to be furloughed because of a fear of um, contracting COVID, or at least until we could figure out what steps we could take to, to work in the safest and the most manageable capacity. Um, and so that was our step. We, we moved into those meals. We did affordable meals. Um, the, the community was, was very supportive. We created a GoFundMe account. Again, the community was very supportive and we raised this money. We raised it relatively quickly. We raised about 36 grand, um, you know, in, in a matter of a few weeks. And um, um, in addition to the funds that we brought in, and we worked, mind you, at a break even. Um, mm. and, and in business, we recognize that, you know, the easiest way to stop the bleeding, i.e., lose money, is to just shut everything down. Mm-hmm. Right? And and yeah. and so we so we we quickly went through our numbers. We figured out what the price point needed to be, so that we weren't um, um, negatively impacting the community with with pricing. Because um, you know we didn't know who we would be feeding. We, we you know when you say community, it's a very broad um, statement. You know as it relates mm. to who who that community could be, and so. We had approachable meals, affordable meals, 
and we have an opportunity to continue to cash flow that space. Um, and in doing that, we were able to break even and our team was able to make money. Um, and that afforded them the opportunity to save quickly. It also afforded them meals. So it lowered their expenses. And then we took one, one other step. Uh, we called our, our legal team and had them work with us to draft letters uh, requesting renovatement for, um, um, you know, during the, the, during the period of COVID. Um, in mm-hmm. which case, some of our, some of our team members were able to get abatement. Many of them were able to get their rent deferred at a very minimum with a really approachable payment plan. Um, so rent was just divided, um, um, throughout their, their lease term, you know, when there's something like an extra 25 or $30 that, that would afford them the opportunity to play catch up, um, without, without a huge strain and give them some, some leg room. And, and sorry, you're talking about, this is for your employees. You're not talking about rent abatement for your restaurant. No, I'm talking about for the employees. We had our legal team draft letters that we handed out to our team that they could, that they could personalize. And, and we, we, you, when they use those letters to, to position themselves so that they could weather the storm. And then how have you gotten to, because I thought you guys were doing also, at some point you started feeding uh, frontline workers in some way. Is that connected or that was the next phase? So that was, it was connected. We had a dear friend of our, of our brand um, who's, a, who's a physician. And she reached out and asked if, if we would be willing to put together about, I think it was about 70 meals the first time for, uh, for a group of young people. Well, I don't know if they're young, but for a group of uh, residents that um, she oversaw. <clears throat> and um, we were already on board when she called because we just felt like that was a good thing to do. Um, and mm-hmm. once she explained the difficulty of getting food into the hospital, because hospitals were on lockdown, basically, if you weren't staffed, yeah. you couldn't get in the hospital unless you were physically sick with COVID. <clears throat> you even had mm-hmm. a hard time, you know, if, if you had a, if you had a, a mild illness. And so, um, delivery drivers definitely weren't getting in. And the night crew, uh, if you remember at this time, most hospitals, felt like they didn't have adequate um, uh, materials to do their job. So we were challenged with having masks, challenged with gloves, and challenged with respirators. <clears throat> and for most of us that have, that have worked in any environment, the quickest way to lower morale is to ask someone to do a job without, without the adequate resources. And so... Mm-hmm. Then it became a priority. It was it was already something that seemed like it was important, but it became a priority at that point. And so we 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 put together meals as often as we could, and then we started thinking about how we could pool resources because we didn't feel like that physician should have to pay for those meals, um, even though the physician was was 
okay with paying for them. We just didn't think that was right. And so we wanted to become, we wanted to play a bigger role and we wanted to allow the community to play a bigger role. And so once our team got to a position where they had saved enough money, where they could make a decision based on the big picture, being their health um, and allowing that decision to be informed by their health and not informed by their finances, i.e. just being forced to work. Um, mm. And some people asked if they could be furloughed until we got a better grasp on this thing. Um, we felt like having less people in the building and um, having less people enter into the building would allow us the um, allow us to, to pivot in the safest space that we possibly could. Because during a drop to a hospital only takes a certain amount of people to physically cook the food. And last but not least, nobody physically comes to my door. I could load, mm. we could load a truck with two people and drop in an empty room and walk back out of the hospital. So that sounded like we could do really good. We could, we could lower our risk and we could support people that we thought were really in need of help and doing a job that most of us aren't equipped to do, even if we had the correct materials and or tools. And so we shifted from service um, um, based on that initial um, idea into doing that only. I see. All right. Well, thank you for taking us through that. We're going to continue the conversation in a moment, and we'll be back after this break to talk more with Chef Eric Williams about keeping restaurants going during COVID-19. Stay with us. I'm Brian Kenny board member at HRN and director of collections and archives for Hearst Western Properties. For 150 years, the Hearst family has raised cattle on 150,000 acres of rich, sustainable grasslands on California's central coast. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about the company's longstanding values. You know, what it makes me think of is the thing that we've run into a lot in in this business with Hearst Ranch Beef was the scale of the business and the adjectives that we have. Give me the top adjectives. Well, 100% free range and grass fed. That's probably the the biggest one. Uh, All natural, no antibiotics, no ionophores, no hormones. So those are uh, an American, local. So those are probably the, our biggest ones. You know, all raised, born and raised on one ranch. Everything is free range and grass fed its entire life. Right. And, uh, and, and local uh, California grown, American grown. So those are probably the biggest things that, that set us apart. Hearst Ranch Beef is the nation's largest single source provider of 100% grass fed beef that is always free range and antibiotic free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego 
throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Eric Williams of Virtue Restaurant and Bar in Chicago about managing a top restaurant amidst protests and a pandemic. So before we talk, I want to give people a little bit more bigger picture sense of you know, why you open Virtue and what it's about. But I wanted you to finish what you were talking about. And so where have you kind of come out in terms of reopening? And I also wanted to, I know you're involved in something called the Lee Initiative. Can you kind of talk about where you've progressed to at this moment in time? Sure. So we, um, ironically, we, we gained a partner the day that we decided, two days, two days before we decided that we were going to shift or pivot uh, into health meals for healthcare workers solely, um, and that that partner was Common, the rapper, and um, the app. Not the app. I'm sorry. The the um um the um the dating platform Bumble, and so <laughs> um through that through their initiative, they wanted to do a drop at Strozier Hospital in Chicago, which is um, not far from where I reside. And we were doing drops at University of Chicago, which is, you know, less than a mile from where Virtue is. And so that was our focus. Um, and it, and, and I mean, it was, it was incredible. It was incredible on many levels because people were very happy to receive kindness by way of a meal. Um, and it served every purpose and, and, and more than we thought we could, um, we could extend to someone in that moment. So you've done that. And now is the restaurant reopen or it's like partially open and you're still doing this? So sort of what stage of you sort of, of regular operation? So the the third phase, I would say, um, So we, the city allowed us to do cafe seating or sidewalk seating. And so we've opened our sidewalk. We have eliminated the um, healthcare worker meals. I mean, hospitals um have reopened to treat um outpatient surgeries and all the other things that hospitals do we can go to the dentist now um so we felt like you know this would be a good time for us to now focus on 
making sure that our business was able to sustain. And so um, at 25 or 30 percent occupancy, we can um, we're at a place where our team has um, started to come back. Um, we've been able to purchase masks and all of the um, PPE that is necessary. Tables are six feet apart. Um, and additionally, we have been able to we have been able to um, utilize the inside of the space at twenty five percent, which we actually don't utilize very much because the odd thing about outdoor seating is rain. And so um, so we're very careful to make sure we have space in case we're affected by weather so we don't lose um, full days um, of, of service. And um, we, in addition to that, we're doing takeout. We've, we're using part of the restaurant to do takeout. Um, and so that's where we're at right now. And, and I wanted to, I don't want to lose this time to sort of ask you, I mean, I think you've talked very eloquently and clearly and, and, and in many ways, matter of factly about what I can only imagine has been a pretty harrowing experience. And then on top of things, there's been all of this, uh, I think, inspiring but intense social change and Chicago not immune to it. And obviously, with a lot of history there in Chicago, and I was really struck by you alluded to this. We haven't talked about it a lot. There's a lot of meaning behind virtual in its name and what you stand for, and what what you put into creating this restaurant of your mm -hmm. own. And I wanted to to read the quote that is sort of behind the restaurant from your father about who said, and you've used this: the search for quality is found through common ground. And sharing a meal is a universal expression of respect and dignity. And I know some, that's something that Julia really would agree with and believed, but I think that quote is even more powerful, and it was obviously part of Virtue's background before George Floyd's murder and the, the surge of racial justice protests. So I, I wanted to ask you and just set that stage for listeners about this being very much part of your opening and running virtue and wanted to hear what your outlook is right now on, on, on the change that most needs to happen and what you'd really like to see. I mean, you can say in the immediate term and the long term and the short term or what, what's really given all that you've been through lately and all that there's been in, in history. I think that was like 18 now. questions with a close. All right. So I'll, I will try my <laughs> best to capture you can answer any um, one of the 18 you want to. <laughs> virtue is my experience full circle up to its conception. And and so it would take us too long to unpack that, that statement. But what I will do is talk about a few of the things that you've highlighted. The word virtue defined 
means high moral standard. If we unpack the word alone, we would find words like respect, dignity, courage, kindness, hospitality. And hospitality being the one that is often confused, but defines the community that I belong to. And so when we, when we think about hospitality, service is the technical part of your experience in a restaurant or a hotel or the exchange with your valet driver. Um, you would expect your valet driver to give you your keys back when they drive up in your vehicle. But the valet driver does not have to hold the door open for you, does not have to run around to the other side and open the door for your guest, does not have to um, tell you to have a great evening. They don't have to ask you how your, how your meal was in a restaurant uh, or how your stay was in a hotel. Um, there are things that we extend to people by way of our human interaction, human touch, um, that adds humanity to the process and it, it, it prevents it from being mechanized. And so sitting in a restaurant, if I, if I, if I took away your dirty plate and, and brought over a new one, that would be service. To walk up and pour more water would be service. Um, but to notice when you walk into a room with an elder and the, and the, and the foyer does not have seating and it's going to be a 10-minute wait, to run and get that elder a chair, that recognition that that person may not be able to stand as long as, as we're able to stand comfortably, that's an extension of hospitality. To find out if that person wants water, if they're sweating, if, if, if they'd like for you to get them um, um, something to, to you know, dry the sweat, that's hospitality. And so I recognize in my life that the first person to extend hospitality was my great-grandmother. And my great-grandmother did that by what we would call check-ins. And she could, she could drill down into what your fears were, your problems were. She could support your dreams or, or help you, if you were off track, uh, get back on track. All in these moments, because there was, there was a, she was compassionate and, and there was a, um, a passion driven approach to making sure that we all knew that we mattered. And so I was talking to a friend, Omar Tate, who's also a chef. And he refreshed me and enlightened me by talking about this idea that restaurant 
at its core, its root, is to restore. And if you think about it in that context, it makes it just really, really easy to talk about. Because the truth is, what we want to do is provide kind space for people to matter. We want people to be able to press reset. And Mm. I want to give that to people because, because I crave it. And I think, I think the, the best way to get things in the world is to be willing to create it or facilitate it and to give it because it comes back around. If you want hate, all you got to do is walk around and start hating people. And mm. at some point, hate's going to slap you right in the face. <laughs> right? And if you want love, if you generously give it, you may not get it from the people you want to get it from but you will definitely receive love. And it's been proven. And so with that being said, Mm -hmm. we wanted to have a place that facilitated our team in a way where the team knew that it mattered, that we could develop a team, right? Not train a team, but develop people so that they had skills that, that translated from things that they encountered and things that they understood and, and, and instincts into their day-to-day at work and their day-to-day at home. And so one might ask the question, well, what kind of instincts are you talking about? One of those instincts would be organization. Organization works really, really well at your job, and it works really, really well at home. It works really well in your relationships, and it doesn't matter what career path you take. Organization <laughs> is probably a skill set that most people will be willing to pay for. And so now, yeah. after we've unpacked that, then, then where are the parallels to what has happened as it relates to George Floyd? Where are the parallels as it, as it relates to um, what my father said in that, in that expression? Um, where are the parallels as it relates to just being a, a chef? Like, like how is a chef going to change the world? Trust happens to be a virtue. And, and we believe that we can, we can gain people's trust by providing them good meals, by providing them with a high level of respect and dignity and decency. And we believe that if that warmth is ushered properly in our space, the food would actually taste better. Same mac and cheese you ate yesterday tastes better because you feel good when you mm-hmm. eat it. And if anybody would decide to to con, con, to contest me mm-hmm. on that theory, then I would I would rebut by saying, "How does food taste when you're hangry?" The best meal in the world is is not mm-hmm. suffice when you've waited too long to eat. It is it's just it's just hard to really digest it, mm-hmm. right? You're like you're like scoffing it down. And so now we move into this place where people are now starting to trust us and, and, they, and they matter. So then what, what does that have to do with um, what we all witnessed um, in this great tragedy with George Floyd? The, the, the allowance, the support of this concept of people mattering 
life mattering, black life mattering, um, dignity, integrity, um, having place, has the opportunity to shift the world's ideal of what's appropriate and what's not. It gives us space to think about things and talk about things that yesterday we weren't willing to talk about or confront in our own small communities Mm -hmm. and our communities abroad. It allows us and fuels us, right? As food is fuel, it fuels us to be able to go out and be active in in communities and in our country in a way that inspires a new way of thinking and new processes and new policy. We want to be a catalyst for change. And we want to be a catalyst for change. We want to be a vehicle for change because I've been affected. I've been affected. And that is what virtue was at that moment and that exchange with my great-grandmother. She provided hospitality at such a high level and such rich engagement that I'm still talking about it in my 40s and I'm building a concept around her hospitality. I received hospitality in restaurants. I received hospitality through friends. I received hospitalities in my travel, but it started there. And so what would happen if we all started to work with a little bit more purpose? A little bit more. Imagine hospitality being a weed that was planted in, 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 you know, in a vacant space. All of us that have lived a little bit know how fast weeds grow. And we know they will take over the land. Mm-hmm. And what many of us are experiencing in humanity is this concept of indecency being the weed. And we are not applying anything to indecency at a rapid enough rate for decency to really take root. It's being choked out. And so when we think about what's culturally appropriate and what's politically correct, we we have to have all of these um, sensitivities to how we talk and how we communicate with people because in this decency has such deep roots. We wouldn't have to think about our jokes if, if we hadn't heard so many poorly constructed jokes, if we weren't so insensitive to other people's needs. So we're working in reverse mm-hmm. instead of working forward. Well, I I think you just gave a pretty eloquent and all-encompassing uh, answer to my 18 questions in one. So I thank you very much for 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 that. That was uh, very masterful and I think really easy to take away the the message of of decency. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and Eric's going to share his Julia moment. Get mm-hmm. in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet Tweet us at JuliaChildJCF and let us know what you think about today's show 
and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Eric, Eric, your turn. What's your Julia moment? So my Julia moment is the day that I met Julia Childs at a event um, that I was cooking with my chef at the time, Michael Cornick. And um, I was able to take a photo with her. It was the first time that we, as a restaurant, had done a collaborative dinner. And I, as a young culinarian, uh, was a part of a collaboration um, alongside really great chefs um, and producing a lot of food. Um, I hadn't... I hadn't had an experience. I didn't go to culinary school, so I had I didn't have an experience of doing uh, you know those those kind of banquets, you know, where there's a thousand of one one item, you know, and it's all mm-hmm. got to be right in the production that goes into it. And so there was this um, high anxiety around not making an error and 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 projecting correctly and you know and being poised and. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And then <laughs> then here comes this camera crew and what feels like an entourage escorting Julia into the middle of the kitchen. And she was well into her 80s at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, she took a seat and she spoke with us and she was eloquent and sophisticated and on point. And it was it was a pretty phenomenal experience that I'll never forget. Well, I, I think also what you described before many people would say about Julia, she just had that fundamental human decency that went beyond food to just caring about other people and maybe even in the same spirit of, of your, uh, I think it was your great-grandmother, of hospitality comes from that core interest in in others which which it sounds like is what you saw on that day and did i didn't just witness it i felt it you know that's the beautiful thing about hospitality um you can see someone extend hospitality to someone else and have a feeling um about how that you know impacted you but it's really great when someone's extending hospitality to you because it's even richer, and and it's a warmth that you that you feel and you gain gain an appreciation for, and it almost feels like it's just the person's presence. I think that's lovely. Well, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your your journey that's still 
ongoing with COVID and the pandemic and and your insights on 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 why you even started virtue and 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 how deeply that has uh, you know resonated with just everything that people are hopefully more aware of and won't lose sight of. So um, thanks very much. Uh, no problem at all. Thank you all for having me. Um, thank you for providing such an amazing platform for folks in our community um, to be able to share memory, to be able to share context and content. I really respect and admire what you do. Well, we are grateful uh, for you saying that and for joining us and for everyone for listening. So thank you. And uh, to learn more about Chef Eric Williams and what's on offer right now at Virtue, it's virtuerestaurant.com. And the social media handles are at Virtue Restaurant, C-H-I for Chicago. And it's at Sheriff, Chef Eric Williams and Eric is E-R-I-C-K. We hope you heard the exciting news and listened to our conversation in episode 94 with Danielle Nirenberg, co-founder of Food Tank and the 2020 Julia Child Award recipient. For all the details on the award presentation and Smithsonian Food History Weekend, still on October 15th to 17th, 2020, make sure to follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. To learn more about Danielle and the award, check out JuliaChildAward.com. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.